Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi everyone, it's Siobhan. Are you ready to break up with sugar once and for all? Are you ready to get off of the sugar roller coaster and start on your own path to freedom? Well, if you are, join me in my group coaching program set to kick off on Sunday, May 2nd. It was going to be six weeks, but I decided to add in a bonus week. So it'll be seven weeks starting Sunday, May 2nd, and will include weekly Zoom sessions, a private Facebook group for daily support and to get your questions answered, accountability buddies to stay in, with, stay in touch with throughout the day, plus weekly discussion topics and homework. We're also including a VIP option, which will include four 45-minute one-on-one coaching sessions with me, which will also include the emotion code and the body code. If you or someone you know might be interested, please go to my website, www.unsweetensio.com and click on work with me and then click on the group coaching tab and it will have all the details and you can sign up right there. As always, feel free to reach out to me with any questions, but I would love to have you start to live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Today, I'm very, very excited to have Dr. Joan Ifflin back with us. We interviewed her for our season three premiere back in September, episode 65. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly, highly encourage you to listen to that episode as well. And I will link it below in the show notes because Dr. Ifflin talks about her own story there, and I think it's really, really a powerful story for people. So please give a listen. Uh, but Dr. Ifflin has been creating breakthroughs in recovery from food addiction from 1999 with her first popular book to 2018 when her textbook, Processed Food Addiction, Foundations Assessment and Recovery, was released by CRC Press. She founded the Online Addiction Reset Community, or ARC, which you can find at www.foodaddictionreset.com. She also has a Facebook group, Food Addiction Education, and also www.foodaddictionresources.com provide free support. Reset Week is the first online live video program for withdrawal. ARC Manager Training is a program training future addiction reset community leaders. And I'll make sure I link all of this in the episode notes as well. Dr. Ifflin is the lead author of the first scholarly description of processed food addiction and definition of addictive foods. She earned her PhD in addictive nutrition at Union Institute and University, her MBA at Stanford Business School, and her BA in Economics and Political Science at Oberlin College. And she currently resides in Seattle. So she is in the Northwest with me. Yay! <laughs> so welcome back, Joan. So, Thank so you. thrilled to have you back. 
Thank you. I appreciate being here. I just am so grateful that you're covering this topic. It's a game changer. Such a game changer. Yeah. So today we're going to talk, you know, again, if you missed her prior episode, please give a listen because that's really, really good information, including her story. But today we're going to um, talk about her top 10 discoveries in processed food addiction, because I think these also um, are really going to give you a lot to think about. And it's just, this is really kind of a culmination of all your work, this whole, all this hard work that you've done, all of your research. And so this is really, really exciting. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, thank you. Yes, I've been in the field now for 25 years. I started into recovery and made my first clean meal in 1996. So this is, this is what occasioned me thinking, you know, what really are the top 10 studies? What really has moved this field forward? So yeah, this is yeah, good. This is great. Well, let's dive in wherever you want to start. Um, let's talk about inflammatory foods. Because this, this is a the discovery is that processed foods are inflammatory, and the reason this discovery is so important is because it prevents um, a treatment for all these different conditions coming out of the inflammation that are not really distinct conditions. They're really all inflammatory conditions. Uh, so like heart disease, they now think that that's an inflammatory condition. Uh, bowel, irritable bowel syndrome, skin problems, uh, even uh, brain fog could be brain inflammation. And so what we need to do is stop treating all these diseases separately and start treating them as what they really are, the consequence of a compulsion to eat these inflammatory foods. So it turns the whole health treatment paradigm on its head. Mm -hmm. These are not separate conditions. They are all coming out of the inflammatory properties of processed foods. And if, you know, people eliminate these foods, they have some really huge turnarounds in their health, you know, exactly. Like you know, rather than just going to our model now of here, take this pill. <laughs> yeah. There's so much we can do with our, our nutrition. So yeah, yeah, that is really a big discovery. Yep. I agree. It's, uh, you know, I just, I would love for every medical professional, every health professional out there, whenever they see a, a patient to start assessing for the uh, presence of addiction to processed foods. Mm. If you start there and you get the right uh, immersion, it really takes immersion recovery. It's typically a severe addiction. If you start there and you get those processed foods out, then you can see what's left. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take long. It's not more than sometimes a couple of weeks or a couple of months for the improvement to take place. So I hope all professionals start there. Let's get the processed foods out and see what's left. That would be so amazing. And I know yeah. I think about a lot for myself, a big motivation for giving up sugar and flour was that inflammation in my body. And even mm -hmm. thinking 
as a woman going through perimenopause and eventually menopause, just knowing how inflammatory foods can make that process so much more difficult. Yes. So yes. really a big motivation of not just how I look on the outside, but what is, what am I looking like on the inside now? And that still is like, you know, it's hard because I, you can't see your insides, but I like to imagine how much happier. Oh yes. <laughs> they're functioning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The functioning. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. yeah, I think that's a really, really huge one. So that's discovery number 10. Uh-huh. Number nine is that sugar is more addictive and destructive than cocaine. We have three really good studies here. Laboratory animals have been shown to chew sugar and saccharin over cocaine and heroin in a research project with rats where they injected sugar versus cocaine into the rat's nose. The sugar got to the dopamine fields first and it caused a bigger response, a bigger release of dopamine than the cocaine. And then we have a brain imaging study showing that people, heavy cocaine users, yes, they do have altered brain functioning, but the people who have been using processed foods heavily, their altered brain functioning is more severe. This is reversible. It, uh, the brain does go back to kind of factory settings in recovery. But the reason this is so important is to put sugar and high fructose corn syrup in their proper place. They belong on the shelf with cocaine and corn alcohol. They don't belong over there in the children's food aisle or in any food aisles. They belong there with drugs. So it gives people a great frame of reference. If you're thinking about eating something sugary, you can ask yourself, huh, is this a point at which I would also feel comfortable using cocaine? And then, you know, I say, ah, oh, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, that's insane. And I think anyone that is a sugar addict, this will really, really connect with them because it helps explain why, you know, a lot of us feel like we have so, such control in every area of our life, except when it came to, you know, stopping eating sugar, we just couldn't do it. And when you <laughs> learn that it's more addictive than cocaine and heroin, I mean, yeah. of course, yeah, that's a really hard <laughs> battle, you know, to be able to try to, you know, tell yourself to stop or reason your way out of it. I mean, that yeah. is really, really huge. And something I think about a lot as a mom to a five and seven year old, you know, just the dangers of how much we market sugar to children in particular. Oh, it's horrible. You know, like just going down this, I try to avoid the cereal aisle when I'm with my kids because oh, definitely. especially is just insane. The amount of, you know, and I really, if you don't have any kind of um, and a lot of parents just don't have the information around this. So they, right. you know, they don't know, really, they might see a cereal that says it has whole grains on it. You know, I love that, like fruit loops that have, you know, made with whole yeah. grains. <laughs> yeah, not, not helping. They, yeah, they're not seeing. Yeah. So I think that is something that I hope in this lifetime, sugar does go to off the food shelf and onto the drug shelf. And that maybe my grandchildren like my kids kids will be like what yeah. they used to yeah. give kids sugar you yeah know? <laughs> oh that's a great image 
I think I the other thing I like about this discovery is that it removes blame. Mm -hmm. So people are, are told it's not true that, oh, you should just stop using it. Well, no, this is a severe addiction. Yeah. And so if they can't stop using sugar, they can stop blaming themselves for being weak-willed. Exactly. Yeah, that's like that's what I was piece. saying. I mean, I remember having a friend that was just like, didn't understand when I talked to her about this. She said, why just stop eating? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, if only it were that yeah. simple. <laughs> oh, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. 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 yeah that's huge. Mm -hmm. So discovery, what about discovery number eight? Discovery number eight is that children's brains, uh, particularly are conditioned to crave to be addicted by repeat messaging. It's not just ingesting the substance. So we see in the mid 1980s when the tobacco industry took over the big processed food manufacturers, they immediately increased the cartoon commercials for processed foods. It was about 160 in the mid 1980s and the number of Saturday morning cartoons went all the way up to 560 within seven years. Wow. And now this is research that was done in Boston by Georgie Petrovich. And it shows that it's the messaging that trains these reward system brain cells, dopamine, serotonin, et cetera, to crave, to release massive amounts of craving neurotransmitters, which then control behavior. So the messaging is just as important to monitor as the actual ingestion of the substances, the addictive substances, the sugars, the flowers, the gluten, the excessive salt, the dairy, and the caffeine, and food additives. So people think you actually have to ingest them. You don't actually have to ingest them to develop a severe addiction if you are exposed to a lot, a lot, a lot of messaging. And we know that Nickelodeon carried those commercials to 65 million American households. And this is, this is very strong evidence for how we came to have an epidemic, why childhood obesity increased by 50% in 10 years from 10% to 15%, why adult, uh, you know, all American obesity went from 45% before tobacco came in to 70% prevalence after they came in was the messaging. It's the advertising. It's the availability. These are all ways in which the cravings become more intense to the point where they're controlling behavior and not your rational frontal lobe. Wow. That's really concerning to me as a parent, you know, to hear that. And a parent that's even so many, again, parents aren't even aware of this. I'm at least aware and try to limit, you know, the sugar that my kids eat, but it's really, that's a whole other obstacle, obstacle mm -hmm. is limiting the messaging. Do you have any kind of tips around that of how to? Yes. Um, I would get the television out of the house and it's not doing any good there. The entertainment of the provides is typically stressful. Stress activates the addiction. It drives people to buy things. It's highly manipulative. So even if you can't get it out of the house, drape a tablecloth over it so that it's not cueing the household members. And then really engage children with games and puzzles and 
activities, but um, I just, the, the television is not our friend. It is working against us. I do think I was thinking about this recently for myself is um, one, I think good thing about streaming shows and stuff now is you don't have the commercials. But, so, the, but, the, but the programming is stressful. Yeah. So the programming is setting the child up to crave. Was, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, there are people in there, obvious things, people eating in those programs, but the, the subtle things are very devastating. Uh, most actors have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So because the producers and the directors require them to lose weight, to become uh, uh, underweight for the filming, so they're doing extreme things with their food. And uh, this has been shown to lead to eating disorders and they have another discovery on that. Mm. So even if, uh, I know a lot of people think that, oh, well, if I just don't watch the commercials, no. Yeah. The, the programming itself is very deliberately stressful. That's a good point. Cause I was thinking, I love not having to watch commercials now cause you know, of fast food or whatever, you know but that's true the messaging within the program itself sometimes yes. is very triggering you know if there's you know because usually the food that they're eating in the shows too aren't very <laughs> no so that's no. true to think about that within the show itself so yes yes it's uh to think about. It's, it's hard it's hard to think about all these things these are very sophisticated marketers yeah. who are tracking us in a lot of different ways and then manipulating messages to us Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a really, really powerful one. Yeah. So how about discovery number seven? Yes. Uh, this is a good segue to what we were just talking about. Mm. Processed foods hyperactivate the brain's stress pathway. It's called the CRF pathway. It stands for corticotropin releasing factor. And processed foods cause that pathway to send stimulation to the adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. So we are experiencing life with artificially elevated adrenaline and it makes people afraid, anxious, and angry artificially. It doesn't have anything to do with life, but the tragedy of it uh, is that, as I said, those stress brain cells lie close to the addicted brain cells. So you, you create this tight loop where you've eaten the addictive substance because you're craving it so intensely. It activates the stress pathway, which further activates the addicted pathways, which means you're eating again right away. Now the importance of this discovery is to really test deflate this idea that there's something about processed foods that is comforting. There is no such thing as comfort foods. Once they've been processed, they're addicted, they activate these stress pathways, and it's the opposite of a comfort food. These are stressful foods. <laughs> they're stressful substances. So that is, that's why I picked that study as in the top 10, because people think that these foods are comforting because of a momentary numbness. 
Yeah, where actually it's just increasing your stress, which you're, you know, usually eating and try to decrease your stress. It's actually just increasing it. And you like exactly. you get stuck in that loop and that cycle that we see so many people stuck in. So yeah, again, yeah, I hope everyone's really listening closely to this. And I love that. Yeah, it's not actually comfort food. No, actually, yes, yeah, stress inducing food. So that's really, I mean, again, you're not going to hear this <laughs> at most from most. No. And the other, the other good thing about this uh, discovery is that it explains stress eating. Mm. That we're not actually stress eating. We're having a release in our stress pathway, which is activating the addiction. You're eating addictively triggered by stress but there's a step in there that people are missing it's not stress eating and working on your childhood issues is not going to help you've got to address the actual substance use and the messaging that that person is being subjected to mm-hmm. yeah wow how about discovery number six discovery number six is that the tobacco industry spread addiction to processed foods there is an addiction business model and the tobacco industry perfected it with cigarettes. It's a lot of advertising, it's the five A's, a lot of advertising, a lot of availability, affordability, young age of onset, and then hyped up addictive properties in the product. So like with cigarettes, they put extra nicotine into the cigarettes with processed foods, as soon as they took over Kraft Nabisco and General Foods, they hired a consultant, Howie Moskowitz, to ramp up, max out the amount of sugar, fat, salt in the products. So uh, tomato sauce before Howie Moskowitz didn't have sugar in it. After Howie Moskowitz, it had a, a half cup serving add as much sugar as two Oreo cookies. So this is a business model. And I love this discovery. It's one of my favorite discoveries because it just takes away the blame and the shame. No, there's nothing wrong with you. You just got subjected. You got into the radar of this addiction business model. It's not your childhood issues. It's not because you're weak-willed. It's not because you are self-sabotaging. It's not because you hate yourself. It's because you have an addiction because the processed food industry gave you an addiction. And that's it. Once you get the addiction under control, which does, I think, take immersion recovery, uh, you will be fine. Yeah, and you talked about this in our other previous interview about the tobacco industry. That just blew my mind. Like, I did not know that they took over, like, Kraft and Nabisco, like you were saying. That, I remember, just really blowing my mind, fascinating me last time. And yeah. that there are people that are, that's their job, is to make the, you know, foods as addictive as possible. Yes, you know, really, yes. like. Yeah, as far as feeling shame or blame, it's like, you know, what can you do against that? I mean, you're really, they are people that are really calculating how to make it as addictive as possible down to like a science. Yes, Um, yes. They are addiction merchants. Yeah. This is their product. It's very, very awful, especially since 
with this addiction, they can target market small children. They couldn't do that with cigarettes, but they can do it with processed foods. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the issue, you know, does start so young. They're targeting children at such an early age. Yeah. And that's why we are, like you said, seeing the childhood obesity rates rise and, you know, and just for us in general, just being more overweight and obese since, you know, mm -hmm. it all started is, yeah, yeah, definitely a direct correlation. Um, yeah. So that one I think is really, really fascinating. So let's move on though to discovery number five. Discovery number five is that social circles drive eating behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if your social circle is gaining weight, <clears throat> you're going to be gaining weight. And if you want to lose weight, but your social circle does not want to lose weight, you can't realistically expect to lose weight. You need to be in a social circle that's, that's losing weight. I think this is a crucial study because if you go one-on-one -on -one to a health professional for weight control, uh, that is not gonna work if your social circle doesn't change. So I think the importance here is for health professionals to ask about the people that their patient sees on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. If you're in a workplace where people are eating processed foods, if your household is eating processed foods, if you drive back and forth to work and you pass these fast food places with long lines of people, it's not realistic to expect to be able to lose weight under those circumstances. You've got to work on the cueing, the messaging from the social circle before anything. So again, this is something that I'm just so keenly interested in. It's release from blame and shame. It's release from that sense of being a failure. Uh, if you don't have a coach or a system that will allow your brain to kind of adapt or adopt a different social circle, then it's not realistic for you to think that you can change your eating habits as a, you know, as a, as a single person. You've got to be in a, a culture, in a social circle that is already doing what you want to do. Yeah. Would you just talk a little bit about, and I know for people that didn't listen to the, you know, her other episode, you really should, because I think a lot, it would be a really good foundation for this conversation we're having now, because you talk about mirror neurons in uh -huh. the last episode. Would you just talk a little bit about that for people that might not have heard that concept? Because again, that's the first time, you know, I, I heard that from you and it just clicked with so mm -hmm and really resonated with me. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a really, it's a revealing topic. It, it does reveal what's really going on and then it relieves the person of self-blame and a sense of being a failure. So for the 7 million years in which, according to science, the human brain has been developing, if you were in a tribe, if you were accepted into a tribe, a group of seven to 12 other people, you would live. Tribe was life or death because the tribe could find food, find shelter, uh, raise children and protect against predators. 
So your genes would pass on to the next generation. You watched what the tribe was doing and you copied it faithfully. If they were going to look for food, you went to look for food. If they were looking for shelter, you looked for shelter. They were fighting off a predator, you fought. So the, the person, the human who wanted to wander off by themselves and be on their own, that person died because the, the giant hyenas were waiting for them. That was lunch for, for an animal. You wouldn't live long enough to pass on your genes. So we had these really surprisingly powerful conformance drives. And we are surprisingly driven by them. So when you walk down the street, everybody's kind of similarly dressed. You know, nobody's wearing clothes from the, from the 1500s. Nope, they're wearing clothes from today, clothes that they've seen other people wear. They're eating the same things other people eat. They're watching the same television shows that other people are watching. They're, uh, they're conforming to the culture. Well, this is a culture which is saturated in processed foods. So if you are around people who are eating processed foods, your conformance drive will drag you in a life or death drag, you know, it's a survival instinct. It will drag you to eat those processed foods. So what we, when I saw this research and I realized what was going on, I uh, created a social circle on Zoom. And uh, we now, we've increased and increased and increased the amount of live programming that we offer on our Zoom uh, to, I think we're up to 11 hours in a 24 hour period um, around the world. So we now, I think we have members in 18 countries. The tobacco industry was, was able to spread this, these processed foods around the world through their tobacco advertising and distribution channels. So that's why this obesity epidemic spread through the world so fast. But on Zoom, the brain does accept people on Zoom as their social circle, as their tribe, as their nation. <laughs> And uh, it works incredibly well. I'll give you an example. We had a new member come in. We also have a very gentle approach towards lapsing. So on their first day, it came to, they did well during the day. And as typically happens in the evening, they got intense cravings. And uh, they said, well, I'm in a program that allows lapsing. I'm gonna lapse. And so they ate uh, dessert. Same thing happened on Tuesday, got to the evening, ate the dessert. But on the third day, now they'd been on Zoom with us a lot in the first and second and now third days. So there you, the conformance drive is getting engaged. How do I know? Because on the third day, it came to the evening, the cravings came, the voice came on in the head, well, you're in a program that lapses. So you could have that, you could have that dessert but I don't want to, I don't want to. I could have that dessert, but I don't want to. That is a, that's a conformance drive that has shifted over to a social circle that doesn't eat that. And then I know I'm, I'm being kind of ridiculed for this idea, but 
when you're in the right social circle and your conformance drive is latched on to that social circle, everything becomes easy. And unless you have that happen, everything is impossible. You cannot win against the conformance drive. Yeah. And yeah. I know that's a, just, just, I am so excited about this discovery that, um, I don't know, I hope, I hope this is appealing. Yeah, and that's part of, you know, your ARC program and we'll have mm -hmm. information where people can find out more where you can have that, you know, because so many people, their families don't eat this, you know, this way. And so yeah. that Zoom support and being with people that are can really, like I know you said in our last interview, has been really the breakthrough because you've tried many, many different things through these 25 years to help people. And this has really been the thing yeah. that has made the biggest improvement impact is just having, you know, those mirror, mirror neurons of people that are eating in a healthy way. Um, uh -huh. mm -hmm. So I think that, I mean, that speaks for itself as far as the accuracy that, you know, you're really seeing that that has made a huge difference for people. It's amazing. Very grateful to these researchers. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's move on to discovery four, which I know is around cues. And we've kind of, you've kind of touched on that, but tell us more about that. So uh, this is a discovery showing that cues are a leading cause of relapse. So it's not childhood issues. It's again, it's not self-sabotage. It's not lack of willpower. It's not past trauma. It's not because you're too lazy or you don't want it enough or you're not trying hard enough. It's because you've been triggered. So what does that mean? That means that there are reminders of food, food stimulation, stress. These are all uh, just stimulation that can activate those addicted brain cells to release a lot of craving neurotransmitter. So if you get enough craving neurotransmitter in your brain, it controls behavior. And that's the mechanism. You get a lot of cueing, you get a flood of craving neurotransmitters. Those craving neurotransmitters travel over to your behavior centers and get control of behavior. And it feels kind of like you're being controlled by a robot. You're helplessly walking while your frontal lobe is screaming, no, no, no. The addicted brain cells have now got control of your behavior and they're screaming, oh, well, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get it no matter how much you don't want to. So again, I go back to release from blame. This is a mechanical response. It's an automatic response to cues that the tobacco slash food industry knows how to program into those uh, addicted reward cells. They did it for tobacco and now they've done it for processed foods. It's, yeah. it's via that business model, the addiction business model. Yeah, I think that's so huge. And I remember this just makes me think of, I took an international flight about a year. I was about a, a little over a year into my recovery, you know, pre-COVID and um, it was an international flight and they gave out these Kit Kat like chocolate bars to everybody right. As right. A snack on the plane. And I had an apple and some almonds, you know, I had something else. And I shut my eyes because, you know, I didn't want to see, I didn't want to be cued by this. Yes. It. However, 
the crunch, it was like, you know, as many people are on an international flight, the smell of chocolate combined with the crunching yes. of was so powerful. Yes. I had, like my earphones on, I mean, it really kind of threw me off. And yeah. like, you know, eventually it like dissipated, but it was a really, really strong um, having, you know, I thought, oh, I'll be fine if I shut my eyes. But again, the the smell the was- sound the and the smell. I couldn't yeah. believe it. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, that's a really good illustration. That's an excellent illustration of queuing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's move on to discovery number three, because this is all, all these are so fascinating to me, but. <laughs> yeah. So discovery number three is goes back to the brain functioning. We're talking about these hyperactivated, addicted dopamine, serotonin, opiate brain cells. Well, when they get activated, they pull the blood flow away from the rest of the brain, particularly the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe is where we have the ability to pay attention, to learn, to make decisions, to remember things, to control impulse and some emotional processing. And so when you don't have blood supply to those functions, they stop working. And people are so frustrated with themselves. They're so angry, they, they hate themselves because they wake up from a binge and they say, but I know better, I know better. When they wake up from the binge, the blood supply has gone back to the frontal lobe and they can think again. Uh, and they think that there's something really, really wrong with them. They're, they're, the only thing that's wrong is that the tobacco slash food industry has hyperactivated these reward brain cells at the expense of the frontal lobe. So again, this is some another place where that conformance drive really comes in. If you, right now, if you're eating processed foods, your conformance drive is looking around at people who are eating processed foods and they're saying, okay, we're gonna eat processed foods too, because if we don't, we'll die. So it's like the, the conformance drive is aligned with the addicted neurons. But when you get into a group of people who are being very thoughtful about their food, very good control of their food, uh, the conformance drive starts to shift. And now it becomes an ally of the frontal lobe. And so you can't win. If conformance drive is lined up with the addicted brain cells, that's two against one. You cannot win that. But if you can get into the right group and get the conformance drive, to shift over to, no, 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 we don't eat that. Now you've got an alliance between frontal lobe and conformance drive. That alliance can beat the addicted brain cells. And that's kind of, it goes back to that story we just told about on day three. Well, I could eat that, but I don't want to. So that you just see that the rational, the rational thought is, I don't want to eat that. That will hurt. That will give me pain you see that shift over to the frontal lobe. So this is something that I think every recovery program should be focused on, which is how to restore uh, functioning in the frontal lobe. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. I think the other, just one other thing, which has been a giant, giant, giant mistake that I think every health professional I've ever talked to has made 
is they try to teach. Like, I told you not to eat that. I told you, I told you. Well, what that practitioner doesn't realize is they told them into an impaired frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. That frontal lobe's not capable of learning or remembering or controlling impulses. It doesn't do any good to teach. It embarrasses the patient. It humiliates the patient because they can't follow those directions. They don't have the frontal lobe capacity to follow directions. So again, just, oh, I know there are a lot of frustrated practitioners out there. My heart breaks for them, but I would say stop trying to teach. Just get your patients into a secure social circle and let them, let their conformance drive lead the way. Yeah, and again, just for everyone listening, just so nice to hear that, you know, mm -hmm. to again, remove that blame and shame. Mm -hmm things wrong with me. What? Well, yeah, I know the doctor told me this, but I still can't do it. I mean, you're really explaining why. And I think that's so empowering for people to hear. Thank you. Thank you. That is my goal. Yeah. Just, my heart breaks for people who blame themselves. It's not your fault. Let's go on to discovery number two. Discovery number two is really important. It's, it is that lapsing is normal. It takes a long time to get the conformance drive to firmly latch on to people who are not eating these foods. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of cueing still stimulating the addicted brain cells. This takes time, it could take years. And the importance of this is, is to, to properly interpret a lapse. So this is the mistake. The mistake is I've lapsed, this program's not working, I quit. And that's what most people have been told by their programs, a lapse is a failure. But what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we know we see in the research lapsing is normal. It takes a long time, but wait, because the lapses will become less frequent. They will become shorter. And so we train our people to, if they have a lapse, look back, okay, but I, I'm having a lapse, but gosh, I was clean for two weeks. Last time I had a lapse, I had only been clean for two days. I'm on track so that they don't quit, so that they can be proud of themselves, so that they can be confident and come in and talk about it. Talking about it turns out to be very powerful in terms of getting the lapse to stop. Mm. So this is a really super important uh, discovery. Yeah, I like that. It's much more gentle approach because so many of us addicts have that all or nothing thinking, mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. that I like just shifting that, that, that lapsing is normal. And then what are you like, also, what are you learning from it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So now I would work all the way down to the number one, which is a tie. I want to do like a drum roll or something, <laughs> the, you know, number one discovery, but it's a tie. So what's the first First one. Okay, so these were both so important. 1A is dieting and fasting precede eating disorders. So this is an incredible set of studies, two studies done by Eric Stice, who's now at Stanford. He polled a group of people about their dieting practices and then waited five years and went back and asked them uh, again, you know, how their food was going and the people who had been dieting 
were now had binge eating disorder, bulimia. They they woke up the fear of famine binge brain. It's in the oldest part of the brain. Famine is the leading cause of death for the world for all time. And if you don't eat enough food, that part of the brain, never mind the addicted part of the brain, but now you've got a fear of famine binge brain waking up. That that the frontal lobe doesn't have any chance. Frontal lobe is this little tiny brand new, it's only 140,000 years old, 2% of the brain. People cannot expect that little tiny, tiny brain to overcome this great big 7 million year old brain that says, oh, there's not enough food. Well, then that's all we're going to do now is go look for food. Same thing with the fasting population. So please just begging people to stop dieting, stop fasting and stop blaming themselves because this gets worse and worse with each cycle. You used to be able to diet and take off the weight, but now you can't do that anymore. And you just, the, the culture says, oh, you are weak willed, just stop eating. No, you have been given devastating, just destructive advice by the diet industry. And now they have set you up to have this hyperactivated food seeking binge brain. And I think a lot of people experience that with dieting where they might've lost weight the first few diets they did and then no longer works. So I know that happened yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah, you have to be very, very careful. Um, someday maybe we could do a program on a safe weight management mm. uh, within the food addiction framework. Uh, there are very specific things not to do and very specific things to do. Yeah. I love that. Let's have you on next season. We'll talk about that. I love Great. that. Thank you. And then what's our one, the last one? Tie okay. One. This is the most important discovery because this is the pathway to relief and recovery, which is processed food addiction is typically severe. Mm -hmm. And when you know that, when you know that you are probably have a severe case then you know you need immersion recovery. Because for severe addictions, people typically, they might go away for a year or two to a residential facility. Um, we, we can't do that. But we can get into a program that gives us enough immersion to, to get those addicted brain cells to calm down, stop reacting, restore function to the frontal lobe, shift the conformance drive and put the food seeking brain back to sleep. You can do that on Zoom, but you need a lot, a lot of programming. So this is another pathway to relief from self-blame. If you have not been in immersion in an immersion program and therefore it hasn't worked, that is not your fault. <laughs> that is the fault of the people running the program who just don't know how to address a severe addiction. This is a very important discovery. Yeah, all of these are. Thank you so much. This is yeah. really, really informative. And I'm just curious, I don't know, we're out of time, but is there anything else that you just wanted to share after going through all 10 of those? Any last, you know, 
message for the audience around all of these discoveries and yes yeah, just just a great big message of hope over the 25 years that i have been working with people i've seen everything come back you know obviously not something that's been surgically removed but the mental function the emotional function the physical health everything it's like the the factory settings are still there and you can if you're in the right group and you're getting the right surround messaging positive messaging and you've got the toxic cultural messaging out of your life and you've got the toxic substances out gradually your health professional is de-prescribing so you're not having the side effects of uh, pharmaceuticals it's pretty amazing it feels like a miracle but it's just the body going back to its hard wiring the hard wiring is still there and all this stuff gets better i love that to leave just with that message of hope and also it's, just, it's never too late no Start. no we just took on a new member who's 82 years old she said she felt so much better after getting through withdrawal it is never too late. I love that. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Joan. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.